Good morning. You're listening to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast uh, with Dave Kellogg and my co-host Thomas Otter. Our guest today is Paul Josephak, CEO of Receive. Uh, and we'll be talking about using SaaS as a layer to kind of lighten the legacy load. Specifically, uh, I think, uh, product strategies where SaaS kind of does a, an entry strategy as a layer atop a legacy system only later to, to subsequently displace it. But we'll, we'll, we'll get into that more in a minute. Uh, my host, Thomas Otter, is uh, sick today, so he's joining us and recording, and maybe we'll get a few sentences out of him, but uh, I'll be our primary interviewer today with Paul. Paul, first, thank you for doing this, and welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Yep, fantastic. Uh, so, Paul, why don't we start with a quick, by the way, I should say, as per the red ball in the room title, the room is being recorded and will be published in the SaaS Product Power Breakfast podcast. Uh, Paul, uh, first, welcome again. And second, I'd love for you to do a quick self-introduction for the audience. Yeah, hi. So my name is Paul Josephak. Um, I'm actually based in Europe, um, even though the accent is uh, very much East Coast. Um, I'm uh, one of the co-founders of a business called Receive, which is focused on collections. And we're pretty much building a SaaS um, enterprise product um, positioned as a platform for basically the value chain um, underlying all collections processes. And uh, we've been building the company since uh, the end of 2018. I think we officially incorporated early 2019. A typical venture-backed uh, startup. Um, myself as well as my co-founder are a little bit of an anomaly in this whole startup world in the sense that we both were actually VCs for many years um, in between startup gigs. And uh, we both decided to go back and launch another business together. And uh, yeah, we've raised a couple of rounds of financing and... We're active in Europe um, primarily, um, also now expanding into Latin America. And um, yeah, the product in and of itself, I'm happy to answer questions on later, but uh, it's, it's your typical enterprise SaaS startup, and uh, we're doing our best to, to build a market leader from Europe. Awesome. So, Paul, um, before we jump into our, our ostensible topic, I did want to ask, that is an unusual move, right, to go from VC to founder. And, uh, you know, the grass is always greener. Founders often think and executives often think the VC life is better. I don't know, VCs may think the operating life is better. I'd love a little more color on what drove you to make that pretty unusual change. Yeah, it's, um, there, there's, some, there's some truth to what you said in terms of grass being greener. I, um, I saw myself kind of almost mispositioned as a VC. I probably would have never said this um, during my time as a VC. But uh, in hindsight, I have to admit that, you know, I had spent quite a long time um, in the venture world, kind of in the late 90s up until about 2011. And I kind of have to admit that so much changed in terms of technology and the business models around technology. And also, I have to also admit on the, on the venture side, you know, venture itself went through a huge evolution. Um, even more accelerated on the European side of things. So I was always based here in Europe. I started out at SAP Ventures, which is now Sapphire. Um, and then I went to a smaller private regional fund um, in northern Germany called Neuhaus Partners. And I kind of have to admit that towards the tail end of my career, I kind of sat in board meetings and was wondering whether I was really truly adding value. I mean, I was doing a lot of pattern matching when I was talking to founders but I have to admit that, you know, talking about marketing and, you know, online marketing strategies or how sales were done or even, you know, basically architecting product or positioning a product, so much had changed since the late 90s when I had, uh, you know, pre-VC career for me that I, I started really kind of 
getting the itch to, to kind of relearn how to be an entrepreneur. And um, that was ultimately one of the reasons I left VC to go into kind of a hybrid model uh, where I was running innovation for a large German conglomerate where with my current co-founder, we first spent almost seven years together building multiple businesses kind of as captive strategic plays for this, uh, for this conglomerate. And I just really enjoyed building companies more than I did you know, sitting on boards of companies. And I, I loved being a VC, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, unfortunately, I was a VC with the dot, or during the dot bubble crash and then again in the 2008 crisis. So I kind of took uh, two big hits um, during the time that I was actively investing, which also were opportunities to learn a ton. But um, I kind of, I always felt like I needed to get back to the other side for some reason. And um, you know, my, my mid-40s, I kind of said, look, I can, I can be a VC for another 20 years or I can still kind of you know, dive back into starting a business. And I, um, I always jokingly say, but I, I, I have to admit there was some, some truth to it as well, that there was, there was an article saying that the average successful startup was founded by someone you know, like 43 or 44 years old, which happened to be the age I was at at the time. So I said, look, statistics are working in my favor. Let me, uh, let me jump ship from VC and, uh, and go try my, my hand again at, uh, at company building. So. That's an awesome story. Look, I, I was literally I was going to cite the, probably the same article as you did uh, because I think Silicon Valley is kind of leg legendarily, well, it's ist in many ways, but one of which is ageist. Um, and, and there is this myth that all entrepreneurs are 28 years old. And, and, and I work with plenty of 28-year-old entrepreneurs. There's nothing wrong with them. Yep. But, but it, it certainly doesn't mean that if you're 45 or 55, you can't start a company. Um, and, in fact, I think the average age of a successful entrepreneur was, I thought it was 45, but it's right in that same range. So, well, you know what I think, so you know what's the thing that's funny is that whoever wrote that article probably just adapts it every year. So it, yeah. I thought it was like 43, then it was 44, then it was 45. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess people Shooting are aging. The same audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's funny. That's funny. Um, so, well, I mean, first, before we jump into receive, one last question about this transition, because I think it's super interesting. Sure. What um, did, did it deliver? I mean, what's it been like founding and running a company? What was it, you know, are you glad you made the jump? And, and, you know. I'm super happy I made the change. And, you know, for anyone considering it, maybe uh, some advice. It seems like it's somewhere, somewhere in the back of your head, Dave, as well. Uh, I mean, for me, um, it, it's a different lifestyle, right? I mean, there's, there's kind of the, 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 the let's, let's all laugh about it reality. You know, you don't go to events anymore. Or let me, let me change that point. You go to events and no one really gives a shit who you are. Um, that's, that's the change that you definitely feel immediately kind of about six months in. Cause I say the shelf life of a VC is about six months after you leave the industry. So a lot of inbound goes away very quickly. Um, at the same time, um, kind of in all honesty, um, it is, it is, or it feels to me like it's significantly more of a time commitment on the entrepreneur side, especially as a founder, in my case, a founder CEO, um, there's, there's definitely a, a different workload. It's also different in the sense of the travel is different. You're also traveling for different reasons. You're positioning yourself very differently as, as an entrepreneur founder versus as a VC when, uh, when meeting people and networking. Uh, for me, it's probably the best decision I made. I actually am extremely happy about having made the decision. I do have to admit um, I'm going grayer faster, I presume. It's definitely a lot more stressful, even though you know, a lot of people underestimate how difficult it is to actually get funds off the ground and build a venture business and you know, manage multiple funds over many years and deliver the performance that LPs expect. So I think a lot of people underestimate how much work really good VCs put into being at the top of their game. 
but I still feel that as an entrepreneur, you just have a lot more balls in the air and um, you're kind of being hit with, with probably unforeseeable uh, drama on a more regular basis. Um, and yeah, you're, 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 you tend to be firefighting more, especially at the early stages. Um, you're constantly changing what you're doing uh, more regularly as a founder than as a VC. Um, but both sides obviously fit a specific personality. I mean, I know people absolutely love being VCs and they should be VCs. I also know people who are, you know, horrible VCs and should be entrepreneurs and the same in reverse. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers so the question. So two things to, to pick up on there. Um, one, uh, yeah, I do believe that most operators and founders only see half of a VC's life, or yeah, right, the, the whole exactly. investing and advising side. They have very little visibility into the fundraising side. By the way, to state the obvious, you know, without funds to go invest, there is no, <laughs> there's no VC fund, right? So, so I, I think they have high visibility into half the business and, and very little of the other half. So I want to reinforce that point. The other, the other funny one I'll add, as you mentioned, you go to conferences and you're not a VC, no one kind of cares who you are anymore. The, the thing, when I stopped, uh, being a CEO and I went to Salesforce, mm-hmm. the thing I noticed was nobody answers your phone calls anymore. <laughs> like when you're CEO and you call someone in the company, they all answer on the first or second ring. And sure. then you're like an SVP GM and Salesforce and literally no one answers your call. <laughs> it, was a, yeah. it was a big transition. Yeah, I have to say one other thing that I also found um, uh, very kind of telling was um, that, you know, I, I did kind of see both, I, I hate to say both sides of the table. I'm uh, quoting Mark Sister's website. Um, but, um, but it's very much the case um, when, when you see how the sausage is made um, on the venture side, um, it becomes even clearer how little the people who aren't involved actually know about it, right? Because a lot happens on, on back channels um, and a lot of stuff in the VC world, be, be it between the GPs and the LPs, right? You don't, that never sees the light of day. It's a very kind of closed circle. And um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of what actually goes into venture capital that is never discussed. Uh, unless you know you're in a very specific group of people talking about that, um, I think on the entrepreneurial side, you know, there's a lot more being talked about. Be it you know all of these podcasts and whatnot, you can almost research every aspect of it. And I still think in terms of venture capital, um, yes, it's getting much more transparent, and you see a lot more of it. But it's uh, even you know 10, 15 years ago when I was still you know very green, very early days. I also got into venture capital very young. Um, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I mean, I, you have to, I, I always make the joke that when I joined venture capital kind of 99, 2000 timeframe, I read the book E-Boys. Um, so people of our generation will remember that. That was basically a book about the early days of benchmark. And, you know, that was, that was my primer of what venture capital was about. And this was 99, 2000. I was 24 at the time. I was, you know, basically saying, well, I'll be a billionaire by the time I'm 30. And then the bubble burst and the reality of venture capital came, you know, crushing uh, or falling down on my head, um, and that's you know that's when real VCs are made, right? It's not when it, all ships are basically rising with the tide. It's basically when everything's going to shit, and that that became that became a lesson learned. Let's call it that. Awesome, awesome. Okay, well, fantastic. If we have time at the end, I may ask you for fundraising tips, but, but <laughs> let me uh, let me jump in here to our sure. uh, core content. Um, first, because we're going to be talking about Receive as the example, I suspect on this strategy, could you tell us a bit about uh, Receive? Yeah, so um, it's, uh, it's, it's an itch that we wanted to scratch. It's actually the second company that I'm building in the collection space. So my co-founder and I had already built a business that had only addressed what we would call the lead-in of the value chain. So we were looking primarily with that company at the pre-collections um, aspect of the collections value chain. What we're now doing is we're trying to offer a platform that 
pretty much underlies all the processes um, in connection with collections, almost all the way through to the tail end of collections, which is in the case of, let's say, banks, for example, where, where you get into the whole NPL, so non-performing loan market, and the transacting of those um, NPLs or the portfolios that basically are made up of non-performing loans, we're trying to build a platform that pretty much is, is um, driving digitally everything that happens um, in, in the complete value chain um, that, is, that is collections. And we're targeting primarily you know, large enterprises, so be it, be it banks, be it public utilities, telcos. Um, we set out with the company from day one to go after large enterprise customers with a SaaS solution. Um, and we had the benefit, my co-founder and I, of having seen from the inside large debt collections agencies, um, the way they worked, um, how little technology was basically being used in this part of a business. And we also identified that as, as a market that we wanted to go after back in like 2014 or 15, because when you look at collections in general, I mean, it's pretty much an afterthought, right? No, no large enterprise CEO is thinking much about collections. There's very specific uh, situations where they are regularly thinking about it, but you know, collections is something that was buried uh, somewhere in accounting. You know, it's something I always say was somewhere in the back corner of a basement. And uh, it's probably one of the last things in large enterprises that is now just still going through digital transformation. So when you really kind of look at collections, the way it's still done in, in a lot of businesses, it's pretty much headcount. It's, it's in certain cases thousands of people you know, dialing for dollars, as I like to say, or operations people that are sending out letters, maybe sending out emails. SMSs are already considered innovation and state-of-the-art, and it's a, it's a very ripe opportunity for, uh, for kind of you know, catching up to where the rest of the business world is in. And that's, that's why we ended up uh, going after that market or going after that segment um, in the collection space. And we happen to be based in Europe. And one of the benefits in Europe as well is that you'll have a large enterprise in multiple geographies with different regulatory environments. So not only do we allow people to basically unify their back-end, their back-end IT in connection with, uh, with collections, but they can also then bake pretty much the regulatory aspect into the code. And uh, that's also one of the additional aspects of what we deliver to the customer. And then the last point is that, you know, in collections, very few people, when thinking about collections, were really thinking about customer churn. 10 or 15 years ago, it was basically if someone didn't pay, you put them into the collections process and you basically forgot them. Um, Now, with the competition and extremely high customer acquisition costs, you can't afford to just churn customers um, so basically... Um, quickly, so if if you think about the fact that with technology you can increase recovery rates by thirty or forty percent, those are also customers that end up not churning because they were put through uh, a bad or aggressive um, collections process. So, so we're actually addressing a lot of a lot of pain points, um, but in an industry that is still just right now going through um, the digital transformation phase. So. Um... I want to try and stay at the high level just for those of us who are, are less into the space than you are. Um, sure. Help me. I know that accounts receivable is typically a core ERP module. Sure. So, so where does accounts receivable end and collections begin? What's the relationship between the two? Yeah, so it's pretty much, um, it's pretty much in the phase. I mean, we always talk about DPD, which is days past due. And um, there's kind of early collections, um, sometimes known as dunning, um, is the actual term for the phase. And, um, and then you have later stages of collections. And throughout the phases of collections, be it, you know, 1 to 30 days, 30 to 60 days, anything above 90 days, you have certain or different levels of escalation. And then there's also the processes in and of themselves that are in different industries triggering when a claim 
is being either sold or transferred to an external servicer. So what usually is the case is that large enterprises, when some when a bill goes overdue, some will very quickly get that unpaid bill out the door and put it in the hands of a debt collections agency because they don't want to deal with building out collections processes and collections teams. Other companies will, you know, at times keep something in collections for two years before they do anything with it. Um, it's just, it's dependent on the industry. And so receivables is managing what's coming in. Um, collections is managing what's overdue. If that's, I mean, I'm trying to simplify it, but um, that's, probably, that's probably the differentiator is that um, collections starts when something is then overdue. Even though uh, with technology, you can already start addressing receivables before they're overdue. Because if you ultimately inject enough technology and you have enough data in your platform, you can almost start scoring customers before they go into arrears. Uh, and you can also then start having the software behave accordingly. It's, um, I, I try not to sound like minority, minority Report in the sense of the negative aspect of it. I think about it more in terms of a positive type of a situation where if you could foresee someone uh, running into financial troubles, you can already start working with them um, early enough in the process to avoid them going into debt or becoming a collections, um, a collections case. I hope that makes Got sense. It. Thomas, did you want to weigh in there? I saw a little bit of uh, mic sound from you. Yeah, I was just going to say it's, it's kind of interesting because you've got <clears throat> you've got kind of got two customers on the one hand. You've got your you've got your uh, accounts receivable department, and then you've also got the the the, uh, the the creditor at the end of the day. You know, and yeah. you're and you're you're having to design a you design an application that that services those two distinct user categories. Quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, our customer is, is the enterprise. So we're selling the software to the corporation to, to kind of differentiate in that sense. And they're using our technology to interact with their customers. So we basically call, we call the enterprise our client and the customer is our client's customer. Right. So obviously, yes, we are trying to work in the interest of our client's customer because um, it, this is a word that probably would only exist in, uh, with an American based in Europe. So the term that we have for what we do with our clients, customers, is we try and drive a resolutive dialogue. Um, it's extremely you know, buzzwordy in the sense, but that's actually what we're trying to do. So the initial dialogue that our software uh, manages for our clients is to basically try and resolve the issue. There's always some issue underlying an unpaid bill. It could be as simple as someone forgot to pay, uh, but it could also be as complex as Corona has put someone out, someone out of work and they can't pay, right? So there's so many different variations of our clients' customers' problems that we're trying to drive the dialogue initially. We're trying to work in the best interest of our clients' customer to get the, the situation resolved. And that's how we also differentiate ourselves from the debt collections agencies because we're providing a software tool to our clients instead of providing the service of debt collections. And where we differentiate is that the debt collections agencies, they make their money on collections fees and interest charged on overdue bills. So they have almost a conflict of interest with our clients' customers because they're obviously trying to maximize their take um, and increase the fees as well as the interest to, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily um, make anyone out to be the bad guy, but it's definitely not in the best interest of our clients' customers. It's in the best interest of the debt collections agency, which is trying to maximize um, you know, their revenues on the back of collections fees and the interest that's charged on top. And so that's where we're also telling our, our clients, you know, look, try and recover 30 or 40% more internally in the interest of your own customers. 
And also, don't give away that value. Because if you look at the debt collection agency profit margins, you know, they're like 40 or 50% in some cases. So that's value that's being taken away from the enterprises that are giving away all of their collections processes. Right. So the... Uh... So the debt agencies remind me of the scene from Caddyshack where, where uh, he goes, Rocco, help the judge find his wallet, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that, that seems to be what, what they're in the business of. And, exactly. and look, I like your argument that says, hey, if we could actually get the collection, first we can keep the margin. The second, you might keep the customer. Exactly. Right? Um, that, that's huge. It's huge, and it's also something that, you know, collections in and of itself as an industry for the last 10 or 15 years, I mean, most people, when they think of collections, automatically see some guy in a black leather jacket with a baseball bat in their hand, right? I mean, that's, okay. that's, the, that's the image of the industry, <laughs> and it's been changing over the last 10 or 15 years, so even the industry in and of itself has been getting better, and obviously regulation has been driving that more than anything else. It's not like they're the good guys. Um, and, you know, the worst thing is that there's still debt collections agencies or even debt collections departments here in Europe, for example, in certain Eastern European countries, which are part of the EU. But it's still completely commonplace for one of the largest banks in one of these countries, without naming anyone, to still send people to people's homes, i.e. collections agents will go to people's homes, or even worse, they'll go to the neighbors, or they'll go to the boss of the person who owes money um, and try and intimidate people into paying. I mean, that's still happening here in Europe as part of the collections process. And you know, that's definitely the, the, the end of the extreme. But um, what we're saying is that you, know, you can use technology and approach collections as part of customer service um, versus going at it with a very aggressive, kind of almost driven by a negative um, mindset, yeah. uh, make yeah. it a positive interaction and make your, make your customer quasi love you. I mean, there's a company, and I mean, I, I don't necessarily like to shout out uh, competitors, but you know, one of the original companies that, that started out building um, a different approach to collections was True Accord in the U.S. And, um, and they, you know, they're very much focused on working with their clients' customers to resolve the issues, and they're very focused on that customer. And that was also one of the kind of uh, motivators for us to do what we're doing. I mean, we, we initially saw True Accord, and we really loved what they were doing. And, um, and we said there's got to be a way to do this in Europe. I mean, we're going a little bit in a different direction, ultimately, with our business model. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a change happening in this world of collections and uh, driving towards, you know, working with customers and saving those relationships has to be, you know, in the, in the best interest of our clients, i.e. the enterprises. Yeah, got it. So the... Um couple of observations on this whole thing so one to me you're reframing a problem which i think is awesome right like hey this is something that traditionally you give to someone else and you pay them a lot and and, and for you know, you forget the customer relationship and you're mm-hmm. saying hey let's reframe that the second thing you're doing which we've not talked about yet is in some ways you remind me of Blackline, and, and i think SaaS has enabled this which is you know, when Blackline was in their early days, they do account reconciliation, mm-hmm. and everyone saw that as something that was just part of consolidation. Oh, when you do the close, you do consolidation, and I guess somebody has to do reconciliation after yeah. that. It yeah. was kind of layered atop, and I feel like you're the same thing. Like, oh, everyone knows about accounts receivable. You have to do that. Oh, but there's this extra layer called collections, yep. um, and, and I think SaaS has revealed that these markets are, are all big. Like Blackline, the, I knew early investors in Blackline, and they were worried it couldn't go public because it was too narrow, mm-hmm. and now it's worth $8 billion. Wow. Um, and, and I feel like basically thanks to SaaS, thanks to the ability for you to find a business buyer and sell them directly, mm-hmm. that, that these are much bigger markets than anyone has ever realized. So, so it, to me, it sounds like you're on something good. Well, just to throw some numbers around, I mean, just using, just using one part of the collections world, I mean, if you look at um, just banks in, in and of themselves, 
and you look at non-performing loans, um, the numbers are, you know, it's really hard to get the exact numbers, but back in like 2014 or 15, um, there was something, I don't know, let's, let's say it was like three or 400 billion in terms of non-performing loans that were sitting on the books of European banks. And that like ballooned up to over a trillion. And then basically the cheap interest rates drove kind of purchasing of these portfolios. So they got worked back down, you know, towards the two or 300 billion level. And now on the back of COVID, the predictions are that they're going to shoot right back up over a trillion in terms of just non-performing loans sitting on the books of banks waiting to be addressed. Got it. And so that's, it's just a huge market. And, and again, one of the things that, you know, topic of this, of this um, discussion about layering on top of things, you actually have software in place that is being used for collections, but it was, it was originally put in place just to manage claims. It was, it was a simple management tool. It wasn't a technology that was, that was driving kind of what we were just talking about before in terms of customer retention, you know, taking as much friction out of the process, speeding things up, increasing recovery rates. You know, that, that's the evolution that's going on right now. Got it. So, so t- good, good segue there. I think we probably dove maybe even too deep into collections, although personally Sorry. I'm interested <laughs> in it, so thank you. But, but let's zoom it back up now. Yeah. We now understand what you do and why you do it. It's very cool. Uh, let's talk about this layering strategy. Um, how did you decide to do this? Was, first, can you explain what this layering strategy is? And then second, why did you decide to do it? Yeah, so I, I wish I could say we decided to do it and we had all the foresight. It was, it was more of a reaction than, than anything else. What we started realizing is that a lot of our customers um, right now, our, our clients, as I'm, as I'm going to refer to them, were using um, legacy systems, right? So there were technologies that were created 10, 15 years ago. We basically call them claims management tools. So what they're, what they're simply doing is managing the claims in the system. These are basically... Um, software products that are on-prem, they plug into, you know, back-end, be it SAP or Salesforce or whatever, and um, they're not really doing much proactively, right? It's just, it's just a simple management tool for the claims where the operations folks or the call center uh, employees are using these layers of technology to manage their day-to-day. And what we realized is that, you know, right now, and uh, Dave, you'll, you'll definitely know this from your world, I mean, it's, it's a big deal for a company to rip out their whole back-end um, and replace it, um, especially if it's a startup, right? So, so we kind of realized that we can add a ton of value just at the communication and payment layer. So what we would do is we would say to our, our clients, look, you can implement our, our tool on top of your current claims management tool. You can take our technology, so receive drives the automated communication that you have with your customers. And we also are the payment uh, layer, i.e. when you're debtor, as I don't like to call them, but as your customer who owes you money, um, basically comes back via a link that we send to them, we offer them multiple payment options um, on that landing page. So simply by managing the communications layer outbound and then helping to transact the payment inbound, um, we were able to add or deliver so much ROI already up front that we said it's far easier for us to get into the enterprise by layering on top of what they have showing quasi the initial ROI from the communications and and payment layers where we take out all the friction. And then ultimately, we can pitch the benefit of using our system for everything that they do because you want to be able to then capture all of the data which is generated. And you also want the ability to, you know, basically use all the intelligence that we have in the system, you know, creating the dashboards, doing all your analytics, um, everything that you can ultimately then do when it's all in one platform um, that's driving your collection strategy. So, so, it, we, so we backed much, into it. 
So, so Paul, I'm, I'm a huge fan uh, or believer in uh, quote-unquote emergent strategies mm-hmm. where you kind of set out to do thing A, and then along the way you realize thing B is working, yep. um, and then you subsequently embrace thing B. But a lot of people resist that signal from the market. Was this controversial? Was Did all of you just look and say, oh, we should go in as a layer? Or were like, there are big debates, big arguments? Like, Talk to me about how that felt as you went through that. Yeah, it felt wrong initially because it felt like we were almost changing our strategy of trying to land big ticket customers. And we were, we were very patient and our investors are, are very patient as well. So when we went out and raised our pre-seed and seed rounds, we told our investors, look, we're in 12 to 18 month sales cycles. Um, we weren't overselling and saying, you know, which, you know, as a VC, I was every, every sales cycle was always three months. <laughs> and I used to always laugh when it was enterprise sales. You know, uh, anyone who came in and told me that a three-month sales cycle, I kind of chuckled. Um, but we were, you know, we were very um, realistic and told our investors that we're going to have 12 to 18-month sales cycles. What we realized, though, is that a lot of times the customers would come to us and say, I got a problem that I have to solve now. And I don't have the time and I don't have the resources and I probably don't even have the budget to now very quickly rip out what I have and replace it with your solution. But I'd be more than happy to take the communications layer and the payments layer so that I can really start seeing value. And, um, you know, we basically very quickly turned on a dime and said, well, if that person also then sees value and can use that value to then argue for a much bigger deal down the road, we'd be foolish not to switch to that kind of a model. So we don't push it initially. But we can offer it, and we don't, we, don't, we don't try and avoid doing it. We actually like getting um, in, um, into the enterprise as quickly as possible because we're always confident that we can show ROI. So, so you're hitting on, I have a little rule of SaaS sales. I mean, this to me is the essence of what SaaS did to the software business mm-hmm. because in days of old, you could never sell that because it would go through central IT, it would get blocked in a long list of projects, it would be strategic. They'd call the incumbent vendor on claims management and they'd say it's on our roadmap and, and you would just you know starve to death. Um, but in this new world, you find, I mean, like I have three, three tests, which is if you can find a business user in pain who has the ability to move budget um, and they want to work with you, you, you have a deal. No process required, right? If I'm a VP of finance at my last company and I'm having trouble with the budget, I have money that I can move to solve the problem and you show up, convince me you can solve the problem. Um, I can free up money to do it and I want to work with you. Boom, deal. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's the beauty in my mind of the other way to look at the strategy, Paul, is you enter tactically and then become strategic later. That's exactly, right? that's what I was going to say. Um, we become, we become tactical. On the way in. Yeah, perfect, perfect point. And there's one other aspect, again, SaaS driven. We don't need to get the IT inv- uh, department involved. We can completely uh, uh, implement with you know, extremely minimal uh, time and resources from IT. And we basically you know, need a line of code somewhere. I mean, we, and we also architected our product to be able to implement extremely lightweight in the sense that we can already start working with our clients by them exporting CSV files to us. And that was also part of the way we built the, the business and the architecture of the software so that we can get up and running extremely easily, quickly, cheaply. And again, we know my, my co-founder and I coming out of the enterprise, we also know the thresholds that generally are there for, for buying decisions and things that then need to go you know, through legal, through compliance, through IT, and uh, multiple layers of approval. So what we basically figured out is, you know, how can we inject quickly? How can we avoid triggering all of those steps that were, you know, inherently always an issue when selling to large enterprises? And if we can get in the door and show performance, then uh, we can become strategic very quickly. So how did this affect uh, your product requirements? Like, um, as you realized that you could uh, 
basically going to pursue this layering strategy, what did it do to your roadmap and how did it change the product you're building, at least for now, in the short term? So in the short term, we probably changed a couple of things um, or, or we you know, rejiggered our timeline or roadmap of when we would build what. So certain things became far more relevant when trying to be tactical. So we pulled a lot of the development on those things forward. Um, we pushed a lot of things back that we realized weren't necessarily game changers in the early stage. So for a very, you know, very clear example is the AI component. So what we learned and didn't necessarily understand 100% when, when, when kicking off with Receive is there's an obvious need and there's an obvious benefit of having the machine learning and then the AI um, take over on our platform. But there's almost zero appetite for it initially. And because of regulatory uh, reasons, primarily in the banking sector, um, a lot of what the AI would do isn't even allowed. So we were doing a lot of development initially on the AI layer uh, of what we do, and we pushed a lot of that back, and we built a ton of it already, but it just it, it wasn't as compelling up front because what our, what our clients want to do is they want to kick the tires on the platform that we have. They want to inject it for very simple processes. And again, as I mentioned very early in this discussion, these, these buyers um, at the clients that we're addressing, you know, they're, they're just learning how to buy software. Because um, back to your initial point of three things about SaaS, there's a fourth component of what we're doing now. We're talking to people who don't know how to buy software because they were never buyers. They would always uh, uh, put it into procurement or, or let IT drive it. Now they're driving that process themselves. So um, again, we pushed a lot of things back that, that weren't necessarily tactical initially. And um, the, strategic, the strategic things we're building more midterm. And short term, we built all the stuff that was very tactical, um, sped up the process of communication and payment. Um, and we were able to do that on a dime. I mean, that, that wasn't something that took us half a year. I mean, that was something that we turned around in a couple of weeks and, and adapted. Um, so I hope that answers so your question. So that's, I mean, it's another important point, right? But that when you're finding this user who has a real business problem and the ability to move money to solve it, yeah. the, they may not have bought software before. <laughs> right, uh, because there was no app. They, they, in general, the the other fun rule of thumb is you know every SaaS app replaces some spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they were probably just living in some spreadsheet, and, and they don't know how to buy software. So, Absolutely. so uh, great point. Yeah, and no, I mean it's very much. I mean that's that's one of the that's I would say that's probably one of the pain points. I mean just being fully transparent, right? I mean one of our biggest hurdles is that we're talking to buyers who have a pain point. They have budget, they have the authority, but they've actually never bought software. So what we've actually also architected into our business, and again this is coming from the enterprise background and having seen a ton of businesses as a VC, you know we're extremely hands on in terms of helping our clients actually manage their own internal processes. So we're helping them steer their internal uh, processes of approval or we're telling them, look, you can avoid this, you can avoid that, this you're definitely going to have to do. And we're helping them kind of almost manage their own side of the equation because we probably know better than they do how they should go about purchasing our, our solution. So we give a lot of advice and a lot of handholding, which is also differentiating us from our, from our competitors. Yeah, one company I worked at, by the way, uh, our salespeople would actually say, we're kind of experts in helping companies buy this software so we can help you do that. And it was true, right? That salesperson yeah. had helped, you know, scores of companies acquire the software, and that buyer had literally, you know, probably bought no apps before. So, interesting angle. Uh, yeah. Let me do a quick room reset here. So, you're listening sure. to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast. 
Uh, the room is being recorded. My name is Dave Kellogg. I'm here with my co-host Thomas Otter, who is under the weather, so I'm acting as lead interviewer with our special guest, Paul Josephak, uh, CEO and founder of Receive. Uh, Thomas, uh, did you have any questions on that? Oh, I, did, I did have a... a two, two came to mind, Paul. Um, I was very interested about the, the AI the AI element. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of have this theory that, that we've had a few years of, of, of what I call arrogant AI, you know, where, <laughs> where AI, AI is going to do, do sort of everything for us and, you know, every product is kind of AI-led and whatever, you know, and then almost you need to have an AI angle if you're going to raise money and so on. But <clears throat> actual customer usage of AI is kind of underwhelming. underwhelming. Mm. And what I'm kind of arguing for is that is for a more modest AI, you know, where <clears throat> where the AI, instead of being this thing that's going to revolutionize the whole world, mm. it actually helps you just a little bit, you know. And, yeah. and you know, vendors will be would be better off focusing on on examples of of modest AI rather than promising an AI that is you know predicated on super smart um, uh, deep learning and and awesome data sets and so on to get anywhere and AI would be would be better off looking for 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 those minimal viable uh, use cases I think with AI we've we've we haven't the people that think about AI don't think about minimal use cases. They think about they think about this big sort of yellow brick road vision for AI. And and you know, many customers don't have the patience to wait for the vendors to figure that out. And um, you know, I think we're heading into something I won't call it an AI winter yet, but we definitely there's definitely a lot more um 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 sort of um not hostility, that's maybe a bit strong, but sort of healthy skepticism, skepticism towards AI now than there was, say, two or three years ago. What do you um, think? I, I couldn't agree more. Um, uh, we were, we've been even more aggressive on the moderate <laughs> front, so we don't even talk about AI when we talk to our customers. We, talk, we, we basically say our AI is kind of an interim step machine learning. And, you know, forget any aspect of true AI in this part of the industry for years because it won't do anything for you short-term. The capabilities that the AI has now, you probably in 50, if not 75% of the cases, couldn't use. Uh, Again, there's a lot of regulation in collections, and there's a lot of hurdles to take, and a lot of, um, you know, you could stumble quite easily in multiple geographies. I mean, you could just have a glitch in the system and, you know, I don't just use an example. For some reason in Italy, you can't use WhatsApp and all of a sudden the system starts sending WhatsApp messages and you're getting dinged and you could have a real problem on your hands. That's why we don't, like, we don't even lead with AI. I mean, we, we say that it's something that we ultimately could, could turn on um, and, and we always talk about machine learning and we don't even talk about the AI. Yeah. And we say that at some point the machine learning obviously can automate a lot of things that you initially would manually configure. And you can save yourself a lot of time by by turning it on, but it's something that you have to evolve into. Um, again, as 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 Dave kind of realized before, you know we're we're going into a part of the organization that's just learning how to buy software, right? And and how to so to speak steer their own software strategy, and also configure their own software, right? So they you know they've never had to set anything up, and and Dave's point is actually absolutely spot on you know they're they're evolving from spreadsheets 
Um, and uh, anything that is a claims management tool is not much better than a spreadsheet. I mean, you could probably program a spreadsheet to do the same thing. And what I, you know, what I basically tell my, tell my clients is, yes, you know, AI can be on the horizon somewhere, but we shouldn't be focused on that at all right now because you're basically trying to get away from sending letters and making phone calls. Right. Um, so let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's focus on what you need to do. That's first, you know, digitalize. And then the second thing you need to do is you need to start taking advantage of the data that you have. A lot of times they already have a ton of data. The, the, the hygiene is obviously off, but, um, but they can start taking advantage of data um, step by step. And, you know, they can grow into being an extremely innovative collections um, department. But, you know, we, we have yet to meet a client who I would consider to be highly technical and highly digital. Right. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's what we're aware of. We've definitely become even more aware of that over the past couple of years. We've kind of taken the AI component um, off, so to speak, the homepage, um, just to use that kind of a, yeah. that kind of a, a model in the sense yeah. of it doesn't, it doesn't help. And, you know, again, the customers or clients are getting so smart. And I don't mean that in a way that they weren't smart before. But as you said, they're, they're, they're tired of hearing the AI story. Um, and it's, you know, I think people got a little bit ahead of themselves on that whole AI component. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw a cool T-shirt the other day. It was called Rage Against the Machine Learning, which I thought was, <laughs> which is kind of good. I think I need to get one. Um, but um, I, I think I need that too. Yeah, the, the second question I yeah, had. I was going to go. I mean, look, I, go ahead, Thomas, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to give you a, a, a second question. It's kind of one of the things that we sometimes talk a bit, a bit about the show is the difference between, you know, um, subject matter expertise led product and mm -hmm. kind of product led product and um, <clears throat> it sounds like you, you've got quite a high level of, of you require quite a lot of subject matter expertise level especially in terms of compliance because you have you know, diff different regulatory uh, environments in, in different countries and, and probably indeed in different industries I expect you know the regulations for utility builds collections are probably different from the from the from um, you know regulations for maybe some other types of uh, um, sure. uh, regulatory collections and so on, um, and then you've got public sector collections and you know semi-public sector collections and so on. Must be all, all all subtly different by by industry and by by country. Mm -hmm. So you know, that requires quite a lot of subject matter expertise. How do you how do you build that up? How do you and how do you catalog and 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 um, uh, keep track of that, and how does that influence product strategy? Yeah, so um, from from my perspective, there's there's been an evolution of that, and that's a that's a great question because it's something that we've probably been discussing quite a bit in our in our fundraising journey because we get we get asked quite a bit by by the VCs, kind of you know what what differentiates you, and I always revert to one thing, and I, I I'm probably this guy's biggest cheerleader, but there's a there's an investor. He used to be at Index. He now has a fund called Angular Ventures. His name's Gil Dibner, I believe. And he wrote a blog post four or five years ago um, about systems of intelligence is what he, what he um, basically titled it. And I found it to be a brilliant post because he started talking about you know, businesses, also quasi a lot of these AI businesses, and saying, you know, what's the moat? Um, AI is no longer the moat, and you need to be a domain expert in a lot of industries, and you have to know how to implement at the enterprise, and you have to differentiate yourself with things that people weren't even thinking about three or four years ago to become a market leader or to, uh, you know, to simply put to win the deal. And so what we realized very early on, having now been around this industry, my co-founder and I, since you know, we've, been, we've been intimate with collections since 2012, 
And we also both realized that the amount of expertise that we built up over the years, you know, it's, it's very hard to replicate that short term um, if someone were to try and inject themselves into this industry. And I feel like I've learned maybe 10% of what's to learn. I mean, there's so much more that I need to learn about collections. Because when I talk to people who are, you know, 20-year veterans of this world, they know so much more than I do. And there's so much kind of like very deep domain expertise. And you need to know about it um, to, to be able to, to build the product. So, so we're, we're definitely always looking at, at those domain aspects that would then drive how our product is being built. Right? Right. So we're, we're very much trying to be a product-driven business, but you, you can't get away from the domain expertise because you have to really understand ultimately how the people work and collections or the collections world and you know, even then stretching into almost even the capital markets where the non-performing loan portfolios are being, are being um, transacted. I mean, it's almost like, I don't want to say it's incestuous as an industry, but um, everyone's worked for everyone. Right? People don't tend to leave the industry. They just jump from one shop to the next, especially when you look at the, the debt collection agency world. Everyone's worked everywhere, and everyone knows everyone. It's not that big of a community. And uh, at the same time, the reason that it is so, and I, and I don't mean it in a negative way, I just say it's, it's such specific knowledge that you need to have about how the world works and the regulations and you know, customer behavior and how enterprise software works and, 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 and that you need to be almost driven by, by the domain expertise in connection with product. Right. Um, otherwise, you're going to make a lot of mistakes and you're going to be building things in a direction that you're just ultimately going to hit a dead end on. Yeah, it doesn't, awesome. doesn't sound dissimilar to payroll. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, I mean, if, to a certain extent, I, I believe one of the, as somebody who's sold both platforms and SaaS apps, the really fun part about SaaS apps is the ability to focus intensely on the needs of one buyer and yeah. discover their world. Um, so I love that you're doing that. The only flip side is, as a platform guy, you tend to think that's a massive competitive advantage. And unfortunately, if you have competitors focused on the same buyer, they're probably doing the same thing. So it can be table stakes. Yeah. But, but, but either way, you have to do it. Um, and and if, if other people are focused more broadly on finance or AR, then, then it can be a huge competitive advantage if, if you focus hard on collections. Yeah, and we're focused on, and again, we're on the collection side of things, and we're also going in a new direction. I mean, this is still very new in terms of, in terms of received growth, but um, you know, b- because we have all the data in the early stages of collections, and we basically have all the information around the customer's behavior because we're at the enterprise, that data that's in our platform becomes extremely lucrative in connection with those portfolios when they leave the enterprise. And what we ultimately are trying to drive towards is, you know, we want to also be the technology layer for all the transactions that are happening around those portfolios that are now in the future evermore going to be securitized. And if you think about that aspect of things, you know, right now, these are extremely manual processes, a lot of consultants involved. There's a lot of work done to create the data hygiene necessary to then securitize those portfolios. And that's also a part of this whole value chain where our platform ultimately can deliver value, but it's not because of the platform. It's the data we have, um, it's, the, it's the domain expertise we have, and it's also almost creating a new industry because on the side of the equation where, where portfolios are being transacted, that's not really an industry. It's, it's part of an industry, but um, it's huge in terms of the volumes and the value of these portfolios. We're talking about trillions worldwide. 
And, um, and again, we're, we're trying to be a technology layer. We, we don't want to become a capital markets play. So we don't want to go into you know, actually securitizing portfolios and then trying to trade them and become a marketplace and whatnot. We're simply saying that if you can get technology to underlie what happens in the enterprise and then what also happens outside of the enterprise, the data that's being generated and everything that you can do with that data is ultimately what's the most compelling thing about Receive. Right. So, so, so if the data is better, then there's less risk in the there's less risk in the in that in that asset. People know more about more about more about the asset. Yeah, and if you think about it, I mean, um, we we love to say we want to become the Bloomberg of of NPLs. So if you think about Bloomberg, you know, 40 years ago, basically taking stock information and putting it on a terminal that you had to pay, I think, twenty five thousand a month to to, to rent. Um, I can't remember whether it was that much, you know, in the early '80s, but I remember hearing a number around that around that level in the '90s. Um, and basically, what it what what Bloomberg did is give access to um, to the stock prices and created a market to trade stocks digitally. And same thing is necessary if you want to trade portfolios of debt or if you want to trade debt in general. You need to get transparency into that market. The data has to be apples to apples versus apples to oranges. And if you can have an underlying technology that is a source of data, you create a whole market in an industry around that. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what we're chasing. All right. So, Paul, let me uh, try and zoom back out of uh, collections and into generic strategy. The, sure. uh, the, the issue you talked about to me is one that applies to everybody, which is the partners. Jeffrey Moore is saying partners design them in, then design them out. Right. Um, And and what it means is use all the available adjacent stuff, build your layer above it, do what you do uniquely, and then at some point look around you and go, hey, we can do that, we can do that, we can do this, and you start to design them out of your offering. Uh What's your view on that statement? Have you heard it before? Is it the way you think about your company, uh, or or do you see a different view for this? Well, we're already doing it. So one of the things that we saw is that initially, you know, we, we saw ourselves ultimately partnering with the players that were creating the layer that our clients' agents worked in, right? So we never set out to build the layer that is managing the claims for the agents when they're doing calls or managing the data that the agents see when they're on the phone with a customer. And we ultimately then just pivoted in that direction and went and built our own because we said we can actually then have just much more or we can have more of the actual activity around a claim happening in our platform, so we initially set out to work with partners, and then we just said, "Look, let's just let's just build it ourselves and and um, make that part of our core solution." And that's now happening on the other end of the spectrum, where I was talking about the, the securitization side of things, where we said, you know, initially the thought was, do we partner with players who are transacting these portfolios, or work even with the debt collections agencies? And we said, look, there's a there's a whole different opportunity there to become the underlying platform for transacting versus trying to trying to work with larger incumbents to to get them to i.e. use our software as part of their process um, so we're trying to go in a little bit of a different direction but we haven't done it as much like it hasn't been strategic it's been definitely more opportunistic dave so um, yes we will probably do something similar in the future where we're right now working with partners at certain stages and we might ultimately try to as you say get them back out the door um, but it's not something that we're pursuing right now as part of the core strategy. It might become more so in the future. Awesome. Hey, great time in the session to switch to some audience questions. Simon is uh, joining us up on stage. Simon, go ahead. How are you doing? Yeah, hi. Simon from Johannesburg, where it's uh, 
product power sundowner rather than breakfast. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just wanted to ask Paul. I think, you, I think you've you've answered part of my question. I was wondering about your sort of the life cycle of your product. Um, you know, Thomas and I both come from the ERP background, mm-hmm. and you know, you'd kind of think, oh boy, you know, maybe the the ERP vendors will start um, you know encroaching on my turf. But by the sound of it, your product roadmap is basically giving, as you said, you're, you're basically taking the, the stuff from your partners. So my first question, my, my question was going to be, you know, is your product roadmap to basically try and extend your life cycle in terms of, of the customer? And the co- I just have one comment, and that was your comment about very few of your, the people you deal with have, have digitized, hmm. which, you know, is a real um, kind of reality check uh, again all the ERP vendors are trying to you know talking about digital transformation of their customers mm-hmm. uh, and from what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that's still a long way to go it's in, in collections it's definitely a long way to go um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of talk of digitalization but very little has actually then happened and a lot of things that they you know they talk about um, as being digitalization really aren't you know they might have switched to some newer um, ERP provider or maybe bought a module and you know maybe that answers the first part of your question I think you know what I think right now is going on and this I mean it's very similar to other areas where I'm almost seeing to use SAP as an example because both both Thomas and I have a background there um, you know I see an, almost an unbundling of what SAP does right now and then you know in the future I can then see a rebundling <laughs> again it seems like it goes in waves but you know I, I think that because we are so deep in the weeds of collections we can simply offer that much more than the large ERP players right now. And yes, we do, as, as you say in the life cycle, we do then expand into other areas. But we're also not trying to recreate the wheel in a lot of cases, right? So um, there's obviously a reason for SAP or Salesforce or whatnot to continue existing. We will always kind of encounter them at large enterprises and we will always plug into their systems. There's a lot of things that they don't do that we can do better or we can be a little bit more innovation first. I mean, at this point, you know, an SAP or a Salesforce are big, you know, big conglomerates and they definitely move at a different pace. And to be, to be honest, I mean, the collections part of the equation for them is probably peanuts in the grand scheme of things. So it might also be under, under served right now by the big players. I think, you know, at some point, we obviously realize that there's going to be competition. We definitely, we definitely know that there's comp- competition coming after us, be it from startups or large um, or larger enterprise players. Uh, but we feel that, you know, we've, we've positioned ourselves with a SaaS solution, with the domain expertise we have, with the platform approach, with the ability to, you know, really be extremely um, helpful on the, on the implementation side. Um, I think that's where we're differentiating, and that's that's you know ultimately what's going to keep us ahead of the pack um, for the at least the near term. Awesome. Uh, okay, um, Simon, did you have a follow up question, or we can get about four minutes left? So I'm going to begin to wrap up unless you do, Simon. No, I'm fine. No, thanks very much. It's been quite an interesting chat. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Simon. Yeah, cheers, Simon. Thanks for coming up. Okay, uh, I think we're going to begin a wrap. Thomas, did you have any closing comments before we headed to Paul for his closing comments? No, I just wanted to say to everybody, um, um, you know, make sure you get uh, make sure you get vaccinated if you're not, because uh, I'm vaccinated and I still managed to get the COVID thing. But I'm very very pleased that I got vaccinated because uh, uh, <clears throat> I won't say I won't, we wouldn't, won't, wouldn't wish this on anybody, but there's very very few people that I would wish this on. 
So, uh, but anyway, those that are interested, I'm, I'm a lot better today than I have been. So, um, you know, thanks for being with me on the show today because I've been uh, only partly here, but but uh, but it's been really cool to have you on the show, Paul. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank cool. You. So I just wanted to make a comment. I thought Germany was stopping all these foreigners coming in, so you didn't get COVID. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, that's the theory anyway. But hey, R- rumor is Thomas picked it up abroad, but we won't go there. Yeah, um, <laughs> Thomas, feel better. Um, so sorry that happened to you, and glad uh, glad you seem to be on the uh, the uphill on the mend, as they say. Uh, Paul, did you have any closing comments you wanted to to share with us about the the session, or just some higher level stuff? Um, on the whole lessons you've learned. Well, first and foremost, thank you for having me. Um, it was definitely a, my pleasure, and uh, I've always been enjoying these uh, power breakfasts, although I have to agree with Simon. I mean, I'm about to go have dinner soon. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was a, it was a pleasure. I, um, I think this is also, um, we were talking about it in the run-up to this, I think it's great that you guys are recording this and kind of making it available outside of the clubhouse environment because, um, you know, I hope that, I hope this is interesting to at least a niche part of the market. I hope I answered some questions that could be useful for some people that are maybe thinking about uh, doing something on uh, on the collections front. Again, it's a very it's a very niche environment, but uh, but the people who do um, think about it, um, I hope there was some some lesson to be learned. And um, yeah, again, thanks for giving me the platform, and uh, the questions were great. So I really appreciated being here. Yeah, well, thanks for coming, Paul. Look, I, I think while, while we spent a lot of time talking in detail about collections and your world, I think the lessons you've learned are applicable in scores of other SaaS areas, right? The general principles of designing partners in, designing partners out, entering as a layer, selling to a business buyer who may not have purchased a SaaS application before, emergent strategy, right? Setting out to yeah. do one thing, discovering something else is working. Uh, I think all of those lessons, by the way, one I didn't get to touch on was just when do you play to VCs versus customers on the AI thing? Right? I'm pretty sure the VCs are loving the AI story. Then you go pitch that to a bank and they get scared, right? So yep. so just to me, so many lessons uh, came from the episode. I thought it was a great one. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us here today. We will see everybody next week, same time, same place. Cheers, Thomas. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Dave. Talk soon. Cheers now. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Take care. Spinning down the room now. Thanks so much for coming.